Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes. I'm joined by Terry Fakes. We are wrapping up our series on books that have influenced us today with a few books that we get asked about all the time. And that is, what are the books that have really influenced you as a teacher and a preacher? So I'm looking forward to this last installment of these books. Yes, it was hard to narrow this down to, I think we'll mainly focus on three books that have risen to the top. There are, I will say, there are a lot of good books out there on preaching and on teaching. Uh, not as, not all of them, I think, are particularly good. But the three that we picked, I think you will be uh, happy you read any of the three of these. Oh, yeah, there's a million preaching books that you could point to. And uh, preaching books are funny because certain guys that you talk to will always recommend a book. Right. That That's the one that made a big impact to them. I've noticed that sometimes it's a lot more the season you were in or what you were learning than it is that book. But preaching books are kind of idiosyncratic and everybody has the ones that they like. And so I hope people take a few things from these books. And if they like the books, that's great. But uh, the biggest thing about preaching books is how does it make you better as a preacher and a teacher? Right. Is there any little gem right. that you can get? It will make you better as a preacher or a teacher. And this is ranging from if you preach on Sundays to if you teach a Sunday school class, if you're leading a small group, or if you're just doing a, a family devotion or something in your home. I'll mm -hmm. tell you, I think the hardest teaching I do on a weekly basis is our, we have a little kids Bible study called Burrow Bible. And figuring out how to communicate the gospel, the Bible stories to elementary school age kids is the hardest teaching there is. It is it is way harder. I spend less time on it, but it is way harder than crafting a sermon. And so whatever your venue of teaching is, finding something in these books and in what we're going to talk about uh, that will help you is the goal. And that's the goal every time I open up a preaching book. You don't have to do it the same way as everybody else does, but there's a lot right. of different ways to grow and to learn. And so I thought it'd be good to just start out with a simple question. What is preaching? What is it that we're trying to do when we're preaching? And I, I think a great place to start on a question like this is, what does the Bible say about preaching? And right there, we've already distinguished between some different kinds of preaching, but let's do a little biblical right. theology of preaching. It's interesting to note that the, the word that is predominantly translated as preaching in the New Testament is the word heralding. It's from the Greek root kerux or keruso, uh -huh. and it essentially means to announce something. It's like a town right. crier coming into the town and announcing something. Um, and so we're announcing the gospel first and foremost as, as it's used in the New Testament. But you'll see this in the very beginning of all the Gospels, where it says that Jesus went out and began preaching that the kingdom of heaven was near. That's the word traditionally used for preaching in the New Testament. Paul right. really is doing more Christian preaching. Of course, Jesus is teaching. He is the first one who's preaching uh, the message of the Gospel. Paul is, is probably our best example of somebody who's preaching in churches. He uses this same word. And when he uses it, he often, probably more often than not, says we are preaching Jesus Christ. So you don't always mm -hmm. see Paul say something like we're preaching the gospel. He uses the gospel in his letters. But when he uses the word preaching, it's almost always preaching Christ, preaching Jesus Christ. So I'll give you two examples. 
1 Corinthians 1, 22 through 23, famous preaching verse in the New Testament. Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ and him crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Another one in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, and that word proclaim is the word for preach. For what we mm-hmm. proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So there's a couple of angles there in the New Testament. And then there's more colloquial ways to talk about preaching. So, you know, if somebody comes up and asks you, what, what is preaching? What are you trying to do when you're preaching? What, what would you say? Well, you know, I, I agree, and you can get very fine here because I want to I'll add another passage to this in first John. John says, What we have seen with our eyes and our hands have handled, we announce to you. And that is not the word for preaching there. That is on Angelo. And so he's saying, We announce this to you. And so there's a sense in which, and I wouldn't draw a firm line here, where you announce the gospel. It is something that's already happened, the event that happened, and that Jesus is indeed Lord and enthroned in heaven. I tend to think of preaching as expositing the revelation of God to us. Now, again, don't draw a bright line there, but if you think about evangelism, and Abraham Curavilla, who we'll talk about in just a minute, says it this way. He says, preaching in his view, technically is for people who already believe in God. And you are taking the revelation, we call it the Bible, and you are explaining it and enriching our lives. He points out that in the Bible, evangelistic proclamation to non-believers isn't take a verse of the Bible and exposit it. It's more an announcement of what has happened. So I, I technically, I do really think of preaching as expositing, if you will, explaining, applying the revelation of God more than announcing the gospel. But that might be uh, a little too fine a distinction to make. Yeah, but I think that's a good distinction. The, the proclamation of the gospel evangelistically is going to take place in the church, outside of the church. Right. In the New Testament, you typically see it outside of the church, whereas preaching is something you see happening in the church. And mm-hmm. preaching, if, if you were to go through and look at what the disciples were doing, oftentimes what the disciples did was they took the custom that was done in the synagogue, and they began to do that in the churches. So in a synagogue, you would read a passage, and then you would exposit it, and you would apply it to the people who were there. That was right. the beginning of the sermon in the ecclesia, in the church, the gathering yes. of the people. And so, yeah, there's a there's definitely a sense that New Testament preaching is exposition of God's word to God's people. And uh, this this is the category of preaching that we're referring to now is called expository preaching. And you can have all kinds of different preaching, but I think all, all sermons should exposit some text. It doesn't have to be sequential. You have to go all the way through a book, you know, start to finish. But you should certainly be taking your starting point from the word of God and applying it to the people who are in front of you. And there's a million ways that we could tease that out and uh, a million ways that people have teased that out. And that's why you see so many different kinds of preaching. But but that leads us to one of the interesting questions about preaching. And, and I think this is the thing that most people want to talk about when they talk about preaching is how, what are the mechanics of it? How do you actually go from the text to the sermon? And this is this is where most preaching books are written is 
hermeneutics on the mm-hmm. one hand, how do you interpret the text? And then how do you go from your interpretation to a sermon, preaching to a specific group of people? Right. And this is this is the craft of preaching, moving from the text to what you're going to say in front of people. I'll add one other thing, biblically speaking. Uh, sometimes when people talk about exposition, they say, well, if, if, if all you're trying to do is present the author's original intent in the scriptures in today's world, you know, you have John Stott's great book, Between Two Worlds, the biblical world of the text and the current world that you're preaching in. If you're trying to bridge that gap, why not just read the Bible out loud? Um, right. what's, the, what's the use of preaching? Well, the first thing I would say is the Bible actually commands us to preach. The, the way that uh, the New Testament talks about when we gather together as a church, what should be done, preaching is always included. Now, Bible reading is included in that often as well. Reading from the mm-hmm. Bible in church and then having somebody stand up and explain it and apply it. I think one of my favorite, more colloquial definitions of preaching is one of Doug Wilson's comments on preaching. Preaching is when preaching is when you move from the third person to the second person. When you go mm-hmm. from this and descriptive language to you and applicational language. Um, we'll talk later. Tim, Tim Keller, drawing on Jonathan Edwards, defines preaching as or he, he says the goal of preaching is to preach to the heart, to mm-hmm. you'll hear him say over and over again that every good sermon has a moment where people stop taking notes, stop looking at their Bibles and look up because you're now speaking to them personally to their heart. So how do you do that? How do you go from text to sermon? And two of the books that we want to discuss, and these are two that have been hugely influential for me, deal with this movement. The first one is called A Manual for Preaching by Abraham Curavilla. Curavilla has several books. His his more technical book is called Privilege the Text. Then he Mm -hmm. has A Manual for Preaching and A Vision for Preaching. All great books, A Manual for Preaching and A Vision for Preaching are maybe a little bit less technical. Privilege the Text is kind of an academic book. And Curavilla's whole philosophy on preaching can be boiled down to a pretty simple definition. He here's how he defines it. He says biblical preaching is the communication of the thrust of a pericope of scripture discerned by theological exegesis and of its own application to that specific body of believers that they may be conformed to the image of Christ. So let me mm-hmm. let me back up here and and go over a couple of these things. He so he's saying it's the communication of the thrust of a pericope. A pericope is just a section of scripture. It could be a paragraph, it could be two paragraphs, it could be a whole story, but basically a natural unit of scripture. So communicating the thrust, we're going to talk about what the thrust means here in a minute, of that piece of scripture, discerned by looking at the whole theme of what God is doing in the Bible, with the goal that people would have it applied to their life, and that they would look more like Christ after they hear it. Mm -hmm. So he's he's saying something really profound about preaching. When you are trying to interpret what a text means, you can get caught in the weeds. You can, you can miss the forest for the trees when you take a passage in isolation and you try to interpret what it means. Caravilla says what you should do in preaching is you should be doing what the text is doing, not just saying what the text is saying. So it's, right. it's, it's, he gives this great example. If, if you're sitting across the table from somebody 
and somebody says, your foot is on my foot. They're not just giving you a piece of information. Okay. You don't just say, right. oh, oh, interesting. And then remain like normal. If they say your right. foot is on my foot, what you do is you take your foot off their foot. It's, it's a, they're using a declarative statement to have the thrust of a command. Because it's nicer to say, hey, your foot is on my foot than get your foot off my foot. But those yeah, actually right. have the same impact. They have different rhetorical right. impact, but they have the same content. Please move your foot off of my foot. And Kerrville is going to say the Bible is essentially doing that. The Bible is not just imparting information. The Bible is imparting information in a way that should be effective for you. It should it should basically command you or lead you to do something. And when you're preaching, that's what you want to pay attention to. That is a great point. And that's one of my big takeaways from Kuravilla is uh, he, in one of his chapters, he quotes Dietrich Bonhoeffer out of Cost of Discipleship. And Bonhoeffer says this, only the person who believes is obedient. And only the one who's obedient really believes. And so when you think about this idea of application, because that's kind of a little what you're getting to, because sometimes you think of a sermon as, well, I want to explain what the text says, and then I want to come up with an application for your life. Curavilla is, is much more seamless than that. He says, no, the text already embodies a thrust. And as I thought about, instead of saying application, I think, how can I be obedient to what this text is saying? It was a little mental shift for me that really helped me, as opposed to I have to come up with an application. It's like, no, this text already wants me to do something. Uh, mm -hmm. that, I found that very, very useful. Yeah, great distinction there, because a lot of times when you're learning to preach, you are so worried about understanding what the text is saying that you miss what the text is doing. And right. what Curaville is going to say is don't just say what the text says, do what the text is doing. And that's actually a lot harder to do on one hand, but it's a lot easier to do on the other hand. So instead of saying what the text is saying and then having to be real clever and think of ways to apply it, say what the text is saying and then apply it in the way that the text is already applying itself. What is the impact or the force of what this text is doing? This is easiest to do, I think, in narratives. Narratives maybe stand out in the strongest contrast between what's being said and what's being done. So for example, I'm in Matthew now. We, we were in Matthew January through April. We took off for the summer, and now we're back in Matthew. And Matthew's gospel specifically is really, when once you know this, it's really easy to see this principle at work. Because what happens is Jesus will teach something, and then Matthew will talk about an event where it's illustrated. So you see, you see this all over the place. He'll teach about money, and then he'll tell you the the story of the rich young man, or he'll he'll talk about discipleship, and then he'll and then he'll encounter all these people. And they'll give you different looks at what it happens when somebody right. encounters Jesus. So Kuravilla would come along and say, when you have a narrative, your goal is not just to explain what happens in the narrative or, and here's what, here's what happens a lot of times. Your goal is not just to take the narrative in isolation and draw a moral lesson at the end, like Aesop's fables, you know, okay, well, this person did right. this. So it's important to always be honest. Th yeah. That could be part of the application, but more often than not, what's happening is, you want to explain what happens in that narrative, 
And then in the scope of the whole book that you're looking at or the whole section you're looking at, you want to do whatever it is that that narrative is included to do. So that narrative may be about the rich young man, for example, but what the narrative is doing is forcing you to grapple with what it's like to encounter Jesus as a righteous person, as opposed to, you know, a really overtly sinful person. So Keller, you know, if Keller were coming to this text, he would say, this is a story that teaches us how to repent, not just of the bad things that we've done, but building our life and reputation and uh, our standing before God Mm -hmm. on the good things that we've done. You're Mm -hmm. not going to get that just by explaining that this guy was young and rich and he came to Jesus and what that encounter was like. You're going to get that from why did Matthew include this story here in this text? Why, Why is this after what's before it? Why is it before what's after it? How does it fit the rhetorical thread of what's going on? Anytime you're in a narrative, that's what you need to be thinking about is not just what is the content of this story, but why is this story here? What's it supposed to be doing to its reader? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And this is something that that is hard to learn. And don't, you know, I would just say if you're starting off as a teacher, your tendency is to explain what the text says and maybe a little background, a little context. That's a good thing. But in your, this is why personal study is so good and so essential for preachers and teachers is I think your personal study is where you're drawing out your own life lessons. You're literally reading the text and understanding what it's saying to you. You're going to translate that into your teach. So I, I think as a technical skill of teaching, preaching is more than that. Preaching is also explaining how that's affected you. And of course, every one of these books is going to talk about, it's not just what you preach, but the preacher is intimately involved with the message. You you can't, uh, you know, the, the spirit has to be working in you. I know Keller talks about one of the best things you can do as a preacher is have a vibrant prayer life, be immersed in the word. And you would say, well, wait a minute, what does that have to do with going from the text to a sermon. Well, directly, it doesn't have anything to do with it. But in terms of powerful preaching and teaching, it has everything to do with it. Right. Yeah, let me add another element of this. If if Curavilla contributes, kind of go beyond just explaining to the thrust of the text. John Piper has a great, he has several books on preaching. I think his first book on preaching is called The Supremacy of God in Preaching, which is a really good book. But his latest book on preaching and his more complete work on preaching is called Expository Exaltation, which is a total John Piper title. It Um, it is. That is what he thinks preaching is, is expository as in we're trying the meaning of the text is the meaning of the sermon or the message of the text is the message of the sermon. But the exaltation piece is another component here that is what you were getting at. Piper says preaching, the goal of preaching is to awaken worship in those who are hearing. So we we can't forget that the point of preaching is not actually just to inform. I think this is maybe the key difference between teaching and preaching. Teaching mm-hmm. is, it is 100% okay if you are informing people of things throughout the whole lesson. You're usually going to do something beyond that. Like if you're teaching a Sunday school lesson, um, of course, in your Wednesday night 
lessons, you're doing a lot more than just informing. But but the basis of teaching is you're going to inform people historically. You're going to inform them about the text. You're going to inform them about how to how to you know connects to certain things here in the Bible, here in culture, here in mm-hmm. history. You're you're engaging people with this information and explanation. But right. preaching, especially as Piper talks about it, preaching is when you move from that, because almost every sermon is going to have some teaching in it. Preaching is when you move some from that toward calling people, urging people, pleading with people to have an encounter with the living God, to worship God. That's where change really happens in preaching. And so this exaltation piece have to, has to start in the preacher, has to start in somebody right. who has imbibed the text, not just with their brain, but with their heart as well, so that they can not just communicate to other people's brains, they can communicate to the heart as well. So what we're trying to do in preaching is the thrust of the text, the the living God who's speaking through his word, is going to be encountered by the people who are listening, and it should lead them to worship God and to have an encounter with him through the preaching of his word that will then translate into change. This is where I think it's short-sighted just to give people kind of life hack, life change strategies is because the the difference between a sermon and a TED Talk is the TED Talk can be influential on people's behavior, but there's a relational dynamic in preaching that's not there in a TED Talk. You're you're trying to make a connection between the spirit in the text and the spirit in you connects with the spirit that's working in the people that are listening to the message. So that I think one of the best, one of the best lessons I've learned in preaching, actually, this is from Rick Warren. He, he cites second Timothy three sixteen, And he says, you know, that passage says all scripture is God breathed and useful for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. So it's, it's almost as if the, the way that we view scripture is as a tool or even as a connector between two things. And he says, and the problem is so much of preaching is just describing the tool. So it's like, you know, preaching should be hammering a nail into the wall. But instead, a lot of sermons are like a 25 minute explanation of what a hammer is. <laughs> That's you know, a really and, good and, point he makes. Yeah. And when he talks about it that way, you realize, oh, I have preached so many sermons that are like, well, a hammer, you know, there's four different kinds of hammers. And, you know, in the ancient world, they used hammers this way, as opposed to doing the teaching and correcting and training and righteousness that the tool is meant to do. So So your sermons should actually be doing those things, not just talking about the fact that Scripture can do that. So so that to me is one of the big things is you're supposed to be leading people into an encounter with the living God in your preaching. And you're supposed to be uh, preaching in such a way that people are affected by the preaching because they are encountering God and worshiping him. And that's how their lives are going to change through your preaching. Now, I'm going to f- switch to the other side because you and I both have read a lot of Roman and Greek literature and the art of rhetoric is actually the flip side of what you just said. Rhetoric is appealing to people's emotions. Whether you believe what you're saying or not, uh, you basically want to get uh, an outcome. Either you want them to change or you want them to vote a certain way or whatever it may be. And so preaching can also be understood as purely technique, what the ancients called rhetoric. And that's also not what we're talking about. Now, you will do some describing the hammer, 
and you will do some techniques that hopefully engage your audience. But all of those things are at the service of, uh, and this is where I like Piper, he never loses sight of the forest for the trees. He'll never get so involved in rhetoric. He'll never get so involved in describing or context or ancient history, although he does a great job of all those things, but he has a clear laser focus on what this is actually about. It is engaging people's heart to exalt the God of the universe. I, I admire Piper for that. He never loses sight of what he's really trying to do. And he puts rhetoric and you know, socio-rhetorical commentary and every other thing is a tool he may use, but it's never the end. And mm -hmm. I, I think that's one of the great things I took away from that book is don't forget who you're trying to glorify in this sermon and what you're trying to connect these people to. Right. Yeah, that is a really that's a really incisive point. I think that's my takeaway from Piper as well is you can use all this other stuff, but use it for the right ends. You know, never lose sight of the right end. And believe me, there are a million ways to get lost in sermon yeah. preparation and to get fascinated by different things and lose the plot uh, by the time you get right. to the sermon. Um, I, I've, I've thought a lot too about in, in Hebrews where it says the word is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, which is separating the joint and the marrow. And it goes on to say, and this is the part that most people don't quote in this verse, and we are all, we will all stand naked before the one to whom we must give an account. And, and part of what the word is doing is that. The word has its own way of dealing with us. And part of the job of the preacher is to get out of the way and, and do that. And a, a way to put that would be like preaching is like preparing a meal and having people actually eat during the sermon. So there's obviously going to be some things that happen after the sermon. You want people to go away and think about it and put it into practice, but you, but you actually want some heart change to happen in the sermon itself. You, mm -hmm. you want to uh, apply the text and bring it to bear. Kerrville would call it bring the thrust of the text onto the person so that they're actually beginning that meal that you've prepared as they're sitting there listening to your sermon. And uh, to, to go back to the other thing, some some preachers, the rhetorical part of it is, you know, doing all the knife tricks and stuff that you see at the Habachi place, yeah. right. but, but not actually preparing any food. You know, right. at, at the end of your 30 minutes or 40 minutes or however long you have, there needs to be some food on the table. And uh, right. they should no longer be looking at the chef. They should be enjoying the meal. And, and that would be a, a way to analogize what it, once you've gotten the text ready and once you're in the pulpit and, and you're teaching, your goal should be at the end, people are eating. People are really right. consuming good, good and point. imbibing whatever it is that the text has to bring. But that's another difficult part is how, how do you move once you have your thrust of your text, you think you know what God is saying here and how to start to apply it to the people that are going to be in front of you. Another difficult part of preaching that that these guys deal with is how do you actually construct the sermon? You know, how do you right. get it ready? How do you make sure that it's polished? How do you fit everything together? And this is where there's several other authors that have been really helpful. I think Tim Keller's stuff is really helpful here in terms of how to construct a sermon. Maybe a, a personal note would help us to kick this off. You hear a lot that people say that the structure of the text should be the same as the structure of the sermon. 
I don't know that I always agree with that in terms of the <laughs> logical order. I, I think the spiritual arc, the spiritual narrative arc of your passage should should determine the structure of your sermon. But how uh-huh. do you do that? So if you're if you've got your text, you think you know what you want to say, kind of the main point, you have some ways that you want to apply it. How do you then go about putting it in the package that will be the sermon? Now, that's a great question. And, and probably everybody does this a little differently, but I, I agree with everything you said. And the way I tend to say it is I, I approach the text with this thought, let the text be what it wants to be and let it say what it wants to say. And so I want to let a narrative be a narrative and communicate its truth in that way. And I want to let hortatory texts, uh, commands, be commands and be something that we submit ourselves to. So you want to I, I do agree that the shape of the sermon should mirror the shape of the text, if you will, what the text wants to do. But as far as once you've got that idea, you understand what the text wants to say, how then I spend most of my time then thinking about, first of all, I like to contextualize it to engage people's head. Uh, I find most of my audiences, want to they don't want to once upon a time in a land far away. You know, and uh, they want to connect it like in real history, in real life, in real times, this happened. And so I like to give them the context and submit it in their head. And then I spend most of my time thinking through how's this going to move the 12 inches from their head into their heart? How does this text want to engage your heart? And that's where uh, stories, uh, anecdotes, uh, things come in that personalize this lesson. So for me, uh, the easiest part is the first part, how to contextualize this and fit it in with the themes of Scripture. That's a very cerebral activity. The hardest part for me and the part I spend more time on is how to how does this, as Keller would say, how then does that truth speak to the actual heart of the hearers? So that that's kind of the two-phased approach that I have. What about you? Yeah, you can definitely tell that in your preaching that you have such rich content, but it's always connected to that real life, real history, real life, real application. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, in your process, I'm sure you spend a lot of time making sure that you never get too far away from people being able to put that into practice. Right. That's, uh, I think, the sign of really good preaching is that you can bring a real richness of information and history and context, but keep it at a level where people can immediately put it to practice, put it in practice in their life. I think Keller hits this really well. He he hits this in his preaching book, but there's also a breakout session that he did for TGC, I think in 2016, called Preaching to the Heart. And in the Q&A mm-hmm. in that uh, message that he gave, People are asking him about how you illustrate things. How do you, you know, how do you construct your sermons? And Keller will say this across the board. His goal in preaching is to make spiritual reality, the reality that the Bible talks about, really real. Right. You know, what is really yes. real as opposed to what we perceive sometimes is really real. Making spiritual reality more real than the sinful reality we live in. So, he he gives an example in that talk of a girl who's finding her identity in a boyfriend, but then gets broken up with. 
when that moment it's it's really hard to console that person because their ultimate reality is in the thoughts and feelings mm-hmm. of another person that now has disappointed them you know now they're now they're feeling worthless or they're feeling rejected or they're feeling depressed those feelings come from the fact that that reality is more real than the reality of who god says they are and in preaching what you want to do is reverse those make it yes. more real about what god says than um, what anybody else might say. Boy, that's really a great point. I'll tell you something I'm working on now and have been for some time is uh, Keller talks about engaging people's imagination, uh, showing them new beauties. All of these are examples of doing what you just said. It's, uh, let's make this real. Let's give you a vision. Vision is an overused word. He would say imagination. Show them the beauty of Christ. Make that real to people. But what really stuck with me, and I've been thinking about a lot, Cole, is I know that Keller was influenced heavily by Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards is uh, uses the word, the uh, affections. And that doesn't just mean emotions. Emotions are part of affections of your heart. But affections are the inclination of your very being, what you are inclined to. Well, needless to say, emotions are part of that. Certain things touch your heart. Certain things draw you toward them emotionally. But your affections are more your whole being is inclined towards something. And so Keller talks about really trying to engage your affections. And so for your example, the affections of the heart and mind of that young lady were all set on that boyfriend. And all of us have our affections set on something or some group of things. And Keller, to me, is saying we want to point those affections at the beauty of Christ, the truth of Christ, uh, the imagination of a life in Christ. I've been thinking a lot about how my teaching can be more effective by thinking about that. And so that Edwards to Keller, to me, has been a very good lesson for me. Definitely. Yeah, that pursuit of reality, we hit a little bit in our Jonathan Edwards podcast um, in the in the Awakening series. Yeah, how do you make this real to people? And Blaise Pascal talks about our hearts are not naturally inclined towards the things of God. And so sometimes what we have to do is not just convince people that these things are true. We have to make we have to help them want them to be true. And then prove that they're true. That's that imagination piece. Imagination is not, you know, fairy tale. It's what is what is your ideal? What is your vision of the good life? If if we can get people longing for a vision of the good life that is consistent with the world that God speaks about and the world that God created, then we can use information and we can use any number of strategies in preaching to help show that that is attainable. But but we want to right. preach to the heart in the sense that the emotions, the affections, the will, the desires, the goals, the longings of somebody would be set on the things of God rather than set on the things of man. And if you can do that in your preaching, that is really the goal of biblical preaching, because that is the goal of the Bible. That is the goal of God's word is to transform us that way. And so our, our mission in preaching is aligned at that point with the mission of the spirit through the word. 
that that to me is a very high level way of thinking and inspiring way of thinking about what we do as teachers and preachers. But let me I know we don't have a lot of time left, but I want to get back to a little more practical thing. And I want to ask you a question because I've been listening to a lot of your sermons and I notice that making things uh, stick in people's minds in ways they can understand it and analogies or metaphors are a great way to do that. And so sometimes stories do it, but you have been using in your sermons of late some really killer analogies, you know, uh, a story of this happened. And so you can think about this text like this, you know, for example, one that you used recently, and you may pick something else, but I'd like you to just talk about how you use these, because this is very practical, but you use the idea of a ticket you get a ticket to go to the show, and then you go to the show, and once you're at the show, well, you throw the ticket away. It's not useful to you. You applied, you took that incident and applied it to the text you were talking about, and I won't forget that because it was so obvious. But that technique of using an analogy is very powerful. How do you uh, how do you incorporate that in your preaching? I do think this is the thing that will make preaching and teaching more impactful. I, there is fun, funny enough. So I, I, one of my um, graduate degrees is in preaching and in that you don't necessarily become a great preacher, but you study a lot of other preachers and you study the mm -hmm. theory of preaching. And there is a whole thread of people who think that illustrating things, telling stories, personal stories, all that, you shouldn't do that when you're preaching. And I'll never forget one of our professors is, has a guy that's kind of arguing along these lines and the guy's basically saying, well, if you use metaphors and illustrations and stuff, all the people are going to remember is the illustration rather than the text. And the professor comes back at him and says, they will remember that as opposed to remembering nothing. Those are your <laughs> options. <laughs> you know, because we, we have to be humble enough to realize you have to give people something that not just connects to experience, but in my opinion, the best way to illustrate things is to do it in such a way that connects to their experience and to their heart. Here's, here's the way I would put it. There are, there are times when you can use illustrations to explain something that I think are, are good. You know, here's a concept and let me explain it to you. But the best way to use illustrations is, is in one of two ways. The first one I call borrowing the emotion of an illustration so that yeah. your people have lived a little piece of what you want them to live in the text before they've actually read uh -huh. the text. So if you, you know, if, if you want, if you have a text and you think the thrust of the text is, <clears throat> you know, the treasure hidden in the field to desire the kingdom more than anything, then you need to use an illustration that actually illustrates the feeling of longing for something like the treasure in the field. So don't right. explain, and this is where, you know, in a lot of preaching, don't, don't explain what a treasure is. Everybody knows what a treasure is. Use an illustration that puts people in the mindset or in the heart set of yeah. longing for a treasure. And if you can do that, then you can just copy and paste that right over into applying it to whatever it is you're saying. So that, that'd be my first thing is 
Don't be afraid to borrow an emotion from something that's really compelling. Get wet the appetite of your people for what you're trying to say and then utilize it in, in the application of the text. And the reason I say that is because if you, if you think about a sermon, not as imparting information, but as a spiritual arc or emotional arc, you know, you're, you're, you're preaching and there's going to be different levels of spiritual dynamics in the sermon. You want to match those spiritual dynamics in the text with your people as quickly as you can, because that's what they're going to live out later on. So that would so be my first thing is use illustrations that borrow that emotion or match that experience. Mm-hmm. The second thing, so like the ticket, the ticket thing is illustrating what you actually want people to do. You know, what, what right. is it that you want people to actually experience out of this text and pick illustrations that are maybe minor versions of that so that you can show them in your preaching how to do it in a real sense with God. So in, in that illustration, for example, what you're, what you're illustrating for people is that you have certain things that you only have so you can get to something else. And you know right. how worthless that ticket is once you're actually watching the movie or watching the show. And then the way I was applying it is for a lot of people, Jesus is just the ticket to something else they want. And when they get whatever it is they want, money, health, feeling good about themselves, career advancement, whatever it is, they get rid of the ticket. And it's like that experience and that metaphor is exactly what people can connect to when you've wanted something more than Jesus and you've kind of had Jesus help you get there. So you want to try to illustrate uh, what it actually, you know, what what we'd call kind of the phenomenological part of the Christian experience in your illustrations. So again, you only get, you know, you only you only have one or two good bullets in the chamber in any sermon. Do not fire them on illustrating a difficult concept and making it easy. Fire them on the things that are going to help people apply this text to their life and live it before they even leave the sanctuary. Your your mm-hmm. your goal should be to help people experience and live the text before you say amen at the end of your prayer, at the end of the sermon. That's how I like to illustrate things. Uh, absolutely. And, and, and that was very effective. And it's something that I have noticed is uh, useful is don't use the illustrate. You've, you've all had sermons that had so many illustrations. I can't remember them all. You're going to get one or two good illustrations. And I love your ideas. Borrow an emotion that I've already felt to prime me for what this text wants, wants to say to me. Mm-hmm. So yeah, in, in a nutshell, there's so much to preaching that it's hard to discuss this. Uh, there's how do you get from the text to the sermon, but I like where we've landed in all three of these books. Curavilla manual for preaching to me does a great job of giving you why you're doing this and how to make those steps. Uh, John Piper taught me in expository exaltation, don't ever lose sight of who you're trying to glorify, because that's that's an occupational hazard. And then Keller was just so smart about the idea of let's engage the affections and the imagination of, of could what I most desire in life really be fulfilled in this Jesus Christ. Uh, each of these gave me a different prism on that. Well, and each of us too would have dozens of people that we've listened to that do this really well. And you can do this in a lot of different ways. Uh, One of the classic definitions of preaching is truth through personality. 
And the personality is going to be different. Styles are going to be different. There's so many people we've listened to that we could point to that do a great job with this. The, the real goal is for you to do what God has created you to do in yeah. teaching his word to other people. Don't try to be somebody else and um, don't think that you've arrived. I mean, preaching is something that can be intensely fulfilling and intensely discouraging. And the way to get through that is to just get better every week, just to mm -hmm. never settle, try to improve, think of something new, ask God to show you a new way to explain something, live it in your heart. And then every week, you're just trying to do better than the week before. And sometimes you'll do really well, feel great. It'll impact people. And sometimes you'll really bomb and you'll just feel like it was terrible. And sometimes those are the weeks that people are the most impacted by it because, you know, at the end of the day, yes. it's the spirit that that honors the word of God. And so all of us, we're just trying to get better all the time. And so these are some things we've shared that hopefully will help you improve as well. Well, I'd leave you with this encouragement uh, from Keller. He, he says this, and I've never forgotten it, and you've probably heard it many different ways, but Keller says it like this. The difference between a bad sermon and a good sermon is mainly the responsibility of the preacher, but the difference between a good sermon and great preaching is the work of the Holy Spirit. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast. Mm -hmm.